week with Craig. It was funny because Craig, Craig picked up on it straight away where it was going. So as you know, I go to prison to do ministry uh, with uh, the Kairos team. It was a lot of fun. And there was a guy I met last week who, who comes along who comes along and he introduces himself. But he only met me in the prison. He, I hadn't seen him before. So we meet at the prison. I didn't see him there. He came in a little bit later. Really nice guy. And so I'm, I'm talking with one of the guys who Craig knows named Khaleesi. He's a Samoan boy there. We're having a bit of a talk. We're chatting away. And this new guy comes up to me and he says, you know what the difference is between me and you guys? And I says, what's that, bro? And he goes, I haven't been caught. And I'm like, yeah, bro, amen, I, I haven't been caught either. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, I'm serious, I'm serious, I haven't been caught. And he starts sharing the gospel with me, which I thought was, that's great, and it's passionate. And I, was, and I says to him, hey, bro, um, you know I'm one of the team, amen. And he goes, yeah, 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 I, I know, which is like that, that whole line of like, yeah, I'll, I'll humor you, like you're part of the team. Because I'm, I'm part of the team. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we're sitting there, we're talking away, and he's still going. And I thought, praise God for his enthusiasm to share the gospel with him. And I'm, I'm talking with him, and, then, and I said, bro, I'm actually one of the clergy, because they, they set up like the laity and the clergy. And I said, I'm, I'm one of the clergy, bro. I'm, I'm one of the guys leading. He goes, yeah, yeah, me too, me too. And, and, and he's still going, he's still going. It was really, I was just really encouraged by the enthusiasm of this guy. And then eventually we had to sit down and discuss. And so I sat down, and one of the other leaders who knows me goes, oh, Joe, can, can you lead the discussion? And then the new guy was there with me, and he goes, oh. <laughs> which was hilarious, which was hilarious. But you see, what I find fascinating is because we have misconceptions. And, and now, I, granted, I, get, I, get made, I make fun of the way I look. Granted, I, I humor a lot of people and, and things like that. But it was like, that was just really enjoyable having this guy share. And, and, and then I had the privilege of sharing the gospel with these guys on Tuesday when I went back again and, and shared the gospel. We shared a Christmas story, um, which was a great blessing. But there's a misunderstanding, isn't there? There are misunderstandings based upon our own experiences as to things that take place in life and things that we actually encounter in life. And funnily enough, Christmas is one of those things that people have a misconception of. You see, over the past month leading up to Christmas, this coming Wednesday, we have spent time touching on what is the Christmas story. There we go. We've been touching on the Christmas story, and we've been looking at various aspects of the Christmas story to take away a lot of the ideas and misconceptions the world has about Christmas. That Christmas is more about giving gifts and receiving gifts. Christmas is more about spending more, more than just spending time with your family, which is a lovely blessing and a great encouragement. That Christmas is more, more than just having time off work. Rather, we've looked at a specific aspect about Christmas. And we looked at how Christmas is about repair. Christmas is about the repairing of a brokenness that creation has, ta- that, that has taken place in creation because we wanted what we wanted. The selfishness of humanity, which broke creation. And so Christmas was about God taking the initiative to repair such brokenness. That, that, that Christmas is really about reconciliation, about the reestablishing of a broken relationship with him and a reconciled, becoming friends again with God. That's what Christmas is about. When, when God took the practical initiative, the pragmatic step to say, this is how it is and this is what it's going to look like. And then last week, Jono talked about redemption 
about how Christmas is not just about repairing that which is broken or reconciling that which was set apart, but also the redemption or the purchasing of one thing out of something to something else. And he looked at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Sorry, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, which we'll touch on very briefly to go. Now, I, I, I used to watch a lot of TV shows. I still watch a lot of TV shows. It's terrible. But some of the TV shows I like to watch is these whole restoration-type shows where they take something that is old and, and broken and they restore it to something as new. Now, one of the shows I actually enjoyed watching quite a lot was the one called uh, Pimp My Ride. Now... Now, pimp my ride. This, see, this, this is this is a genuine car restoration, where the designer of the vehicle took it from its from what it used to be and restored it to how the the, the, the designer, the maker, originally intended it to be. Now, pimp my ride takes it one step further, where they put in like 150 TV screens and massive subwoofers and all that sort of stuff and change it and transform it, where it doesn't actually become a practical car anymore. It becomes more of a distraction to road users. And if the person was broke in the first place, to like actually, if they had a broke car in the first place, like a a broken car, like car Yee's car, like just broke. But... (laughs) Sorry, I just saw car Yee, she's looking at me, I'm like, let's make fun of car Yee this morning. But like taking a, a broken car, and then they repair it and put in all the stuff. So what happens when the car breaks down or a suicide door fails to open? They're not going to have the money to repair it, which is ridiculous. So it's just a, a complete distraction. It's completely useless to that individual. Now, the reason why I want to look at these particular things is because today we're going to look at another aspect of the Christmas story, which I think is one of the most exciting, and I think one of the great blessedness we've received in the person of Christ. So I'm going to open in a word of prayer, and then we'll look at this fourth aspect of what the Christmas story is about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time of year as a reminder to us of the extent that you are willing to go to to make us your children. The love demonstrated in clothing yourself in human flesh. The love demonstrated in a baby being born in the manger uh, who, who grew, grew up in, in, in stature and favor with God and man who lived a sinless life, who died a brutal death so that we might be called sons and daughters of God. Father, we thank you so much for that. And as we look at your word today, may you open our eyes to see and Father, open our hearts to receive from your spirit this morning just the, the sheer greatness of your love and return that love in kind. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I really appreciated what Jono did last week in making the difference. He, was, he distinguished the difference between repairing, reconciling, and redeeming. Because all of those sermons sound somewhat similar. But this is what I think is really exciting about our salvation. Like a diamond has many faces, and each face is just as beautiful as another. Each aspect of the Christmas story, each aspect of our salvation is another face which reveals the beauty of what salvation is to us, of what Jesus was willing to do. For example, when you repair something that has been broken, usually there's a remnant of something taking place. Uh, Who's had a car crash? Raise your hand, please. All right, hands down. All right. 
bear in mind who had the car crash, please, just uh, the terrible drivers in the congregation. Um, so what happens when you have a, a car crash? Where, like, for example, I have a broken tail light. Now, I've repaired it, but you still see the crack of where I've repaired it. There's still a remnant of it, so therefore there must be something done, a replacement of it that has to take place. Okay, so that's when something is repaired. It can function, it has some idea, but there's still some remnant of it. Same thing with reconciliation. When you have a relationship that's broken, somebody betrays you, you upset someone, you disappoint someone, yeah, you can have a risk of reconciliation, but there's always that little bit of a, uh, yeah, watch out for Joe. Uh, yeah, yeah, he says this, uh, watch out. There's still this little bit here. Praise God that the reconciliation that was done for us with Jesus Christ is based upon Jesus Christ and not us. It's, it's solely on him, because I fell. And, and the issue with that reconciliation is not that Jesus doesn't want anything to do with me, it's because of my sinful nature, I still, I still desire darkness over light. And my soul, I still want my selfishness. I still have my stubbornness. So the issues that arise in the relationship I share with him, it's got nothing to do with Jesus, it's got everything to do with me and what I want to see happen within my life. And the same thing goes with redeeming. When we are purchased from the kingdom of darkness for the kingdom of of his, dear, of his dear son. And I want you to bear in mind this word redemption. And I remember Watchman Nee talked about this in relation to consecration, that you are redeemed from something. And I like the way Jono expressed this last week. You were redeemed from something to something else. Okay, you're redeemed from something to something else. You're not set free from something for you to stay where you are. Rather, Jesus is taking you out of to place you somewhere else in the kingdom of his dear son. You want to know why sometimes we as Christians find frustration, find disappointment, find hardship in our Christian lives? It's because, yes, we've been redeemed, but we never move from the spot. We never step into the abundance that Jesus has promised. We never move from here and go to here. Now, even though positionally we are in Jesus Christ, I don't want to distract from that. We are, theologically speaking, and positionally we are in Jesus Christ. Read Ephesians chapter 1, you see everything we are in Christ. But the suffering, or we, we choose, should I say, we choose to live back here as opposed to living in the newness that Christ has given us. And we see this purchase at verse 19, it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That is the cost of our salvation. Now, not to wail on about it, because I wailed on about this in the very first week when we talked about reparation or repairing. We talked about it uh, the, week before, the week after that, about reconciling. But the choice humanity made in Genesis chapter 3, when mankind chose to disobey God and do what they wanted over what God wanted for them, it was because they wanted to be... Hey, we go. Now it works. Okay. They wanted to be their own gods. They wanted to be their own moral judge. And they wanted to be their own boss. And you look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 to 7 for that. Because in the whole temptation of Eve, what do we hear? We said, uh, if you eat of the fruit, the serpent says, if you eat of the fruit, then you will be as God. So they wanted to be their own gods. Eve thought, yeah, that sounds all right. Then they want to be their own moral judge. The serpent says that you'll be your own God, and then you'll have to determine what is right and what is wrong. And that's what they wanted. He would say, okay, I like that, I like that. They want to be autonomous, which is self-governing. They want to be their own boss. They want to be sovereign in their own lives, which is what makes this fourth point of what the Christmas story means so hopeful and so joyous, that we are restored 
The Christmas story is about restoration through trust in Jesus to what we once were. You see, when they ate of the fruit that God said not to, several things took place that altered and perverted everything God had made. Now, we've got a lot of stuff to get through today, and, and, and it, I'm, I'm really excited about this, so please try to pay attention. If I talk too fast, where's Auntie Judy? If I talk too fast, just, yeah, thank you very much. And stop moving. Okay, I'll stop moving too, sister. All right. Everything got So, these are six things that took place, six things that happened when man chose to be their own gods. Here's the first one. Man died spiritually at the moment of his disobedience. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Don't turn there. It says this. The Lord God, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you will not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. There is a spiritual death that takes place. This does not mean that man's spirit no longer exists. It means that the disposition that man had that was favorable toward God has now been affected. That's what happened when we died spiritually. As a result, man that once fellowshiped and with and served God in a proper way lost that favorable disposition toward God and was now in a disposition of enmity toward God. So that's what happened. There was this change in our nature that we were like, I want to be friends with God to now I don't want anything to do with God. Romans chapter 8 verses 7 and 8 says this, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. That's our natural state. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So we died spiritually. Second, eventually man died physically. When man rebelled, a process of decay began operating in his body. It made him subject to disease, deformity, and death. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, we read how it says, from the dust you are taken, from the dust you will return. We are told this. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die. So now there's this new nature of being that we now die Physically, in addition to death by decay, man became subject to death by hazards, by accidents, and by violence. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, what do we read about? We read about the first murder, when Cain kills his brother Abel. In Luke chapter 13, verse 4, we read that those 18 who died in the Tower of Solomon fell on them. That's an accident. These things now take place. Because of man's rebellion, man was denied access to a source that would cause him to live forever. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 to 24, we read about how God sets up a cherubim, an angel, with a sword to stop them from eating of the tree of life. Because if they eat of the tree of life, they would then live forever. You know why that's such, I've shared this before, I will share it again. You know why that is such a great grace and a great mercy that God demonstrated by putting the angel there and kicking them out of the garden? Because if they ate of the tree of life, they would never die. If they would never die, then God would never have the opportunity, or no, no, not God would never have the opportunity. We would never have the opportunity to be reconciled back to God because we would never die. We would be eternally separated from God. God knew this. And God, in His grace and in His mercy, said, get out, stay away from the tree of life, because if you take this, you will never die and you'll be away from me for eternity. So the love of God is demonstrated in that. 
in allowing us to die physically. Third, man's ability to rule was changed. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, you read this. You made them, talking about humanity, a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Here's the one. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, meaning us. Not everything subject. Why? Because our ability to rule has now changed. <clears throat> God, man lost the ability to govern some things, but the ability that he did retain became perverted because that's what sin does. As a result, he became doomed to abuse the earth because of this attitude of enmity against God. Man began to exercise his dominion in a manner contrary to what God intended. This is the third thing that took place. Fourth thing, because man was the governor of the earthly province, he brought tragedy to his domain. The productive level of the soil was reduced greatly in Genesis 3.17. For the first time, the soil brought forth thorns and thistles, Genesis 3.18. Animal nature changed drastically from a tame, non-carnivorous state to a wild, carnivorous state. I think it's in Genesis chapter 9. What we read is how God places a fear within the animals. Why? Because God told Adam, sorry, God told Noah and his family, all things, all things now you can use for food. In the beginning, we're told that he could eat of any tree. Now we're told in order for him to survive, he can eat of anything. And so he says, because of that, there's a fear that is placed, a fear of humanity that is placed within the animals, and so that they can then in turn defend themselves. <clears throat> Romans 8, 19 to 22. I won't read it out, okay, but it says this, okay, how the creation waits in expectation in verse 19. Creation was subject to frustration in verse 20. Creation will be liberated from bondage and brought into freedom and glory, verse 21. Creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, verse 22. Basically, that is saying this, that the creation yearns, yearns for what it once had, that it lost when Adam sinned, the, the purity, the interaction, the submission, the obedience to the very creator of themselves is now gone, and the creation itself groans for that. I think that's quite an amazing thing. Fifth, man was transferred from membership in the kingdom of God to membership in the kingdom of Satan. The consequence had a tragic effect upon the whole human race because the original parents of the race chose to rebel against God, and we are told in the Bible that everything produces after its kind, that all that's produced afterwards is in complete rebellion against God too. This means that every human is born spiritually dead and a member of Satan's kingdom. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, each human comes through, uh, comes, continues through life to be energized by Satan and live according to Satan's way. It says Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. To be blinded by the truth, to the truth by Satan. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 4. To be deceived by Satan to believing that error is truth. That's 2 Corinthians 11, 14, and 15. And to be in spiritual darkness and to be held in Satan's power. To be a child of Satan, essentially, and to, be, and to head to the same place of judgment that Satan is doomed for. Remember, if you read, it says within the Scriptures in Matthew chapter 13, verse 40, that the, that the place of hell is prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not prepared for humanity, but because we're under Satan's rule now, 
that's where we're destined for. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 implies that every unsaved person belongs to Satan and his kingdom and the necessity of the believer's sanctification. That's up there. You can read it. Okay. Six. Write down that reference. I'm changing the slide. Lastly, the sixth thing. Earth's government changed from a theocracy, meaning God-governed, to a Satanocracy, meaning governed by Satan. You see, for this reason, Satan is called the prince of this world. Satan had the authority to offer all the kingdoms of the world to Christ in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Some of Satan's angels are called the world rulers of this darkness. That's Ephesians 6.12. It's a literal Greek translation. The whole world lies in the evil one, 1 John 5.19. And Satan dominates the present age of the world so completely that the Apostle Paul called him in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this age. That's a lot. These six things, these six things you may have thought of, these six things you may have even evidenced or been witness to, these six things you might have looked into, but these six things are what took place when man said, I want to be boss, I want to determine what is right and wrong, I want to be God. As soon as humanity made that choice, these six things took us from this to this. Now, look, it might still go. You get four wheels on there, you push it down a hill, it might still go. But it can't be governed by its own power anymore, can it? It's not sustainable, it's not sufficient at all. But that is essentially what happened when Adam chose to do what he wanted. This is our state before Jesus Christ. And, and this This is the blessedness of the Christmas story. To restore this present earth to its original condition. That's what what the Christmas story is about. That God must reverse throughout all time the tragic consequences of man's rebellion. And he must do this himself. He must do this himself in Jesus Christ. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. This is what we remember at Christmas. And you see every aspect of of repairing, of reconciling, of of, of redeeming, and of restoring us as people. And it starts in the Christmas story. It starts here when God clothed himself in human flesh. When God laid aside all he had in his position as sovereign king and became a man for you and I. See, this is the blessedness of the Christmas story, to restore. And this is what he must do. He must restore spiritual life. He must make humans spiritually alive again. This would involve giving to people a new confirmed disposition of love and obedience toward God and the indwelling Holy Spirit to control the whole of a person's nature in accordance with God's will because we naturally don't want anything to do with him. Second, God must abolish physical death. This would involve ending and reversing decay in man's body. 
abolishing disease, abolishing deformity, hazards, accidents, and violence, and resurrecting the bodies of those already did. Third, God must cause man to govern the present earth in a manner that he intended originally. This would involve a restoring of God's governing ability man lost. Fourth, God must restore his perfect environment that man enjoyed before the fall. And that involves changing the soil to its original condition. Fifth, God must transform human beings from membership of Satan's kingdom to membership of the kingdom of God by causing these humans to experience a new spiritual birth. And sixth, God must crush his enemy Satan, rid, rid the earth of him and his kingdom, and reestablish his theocratic kingdom on this present earth. This means that the future millennium is absolutely essential for God to accomplish his purpose for history. Now, I'm not smart enough to come up with all of these, both the identity of it and the solution to it. A guy named Renold Showers, in his book, What on Earth is God Doing?, written in the early 90s. I was a very young Christian when I read it. But this is what he says. This reversal of the consequences of man's sin could be called God's program for redemption. And while the plan to restore all this was set in place with the promise of a deliverer, you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you have the very first promise of a deliverer to reverse all of this. Genesis 3.15, God promises a deliverer that would come to set all this right. And it's also what makes this time of year so exciting for me. It's what makes this series so exciting for me because in each of these things, you see repairing, reconciling, redemption, and, rep- and, and, and restoration. You see all those things in those six things that he seeks to reverse, the six things he changes. For example, spiritual life is restored when a person is born again through faith in Jesus and the work of redemption on the cross. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We read this. I haven't got it up there, so if you've got your Bibles, turn to it. As for you, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Verse 4, the Christmas story, but because of his great love for us, who is God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You want to know how you're restored spiritually through trust and through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. That's how one is renewed spiritually. That's how your spirit comes alive. And you see this evident in your own life. I know for a fact that when I was not a Christian, I could not give two hoots about Christmas. I could not give two hoots about, I mean, I like the presents. I like presents. I like spending money. I like spending time with family. That was always a lot of fun. But it's amazing that when when you're awakened spiritually, when you're made alive in the person of Christ, what happens? Now, I don't know how you guys feel now, but I actually enjoyed listening to sermons. Like I would stay awake in a sermon. Andrew, are you awake, brother? Cool. He'd only been sleeping for a little while. So. 
But you, you know what I mean? You see, it's Christmas carols take on a new meaning because you see the truths of God's word in those, you know, hark the herald angels sing. You know? Born to save the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. I did not know what that meant until I became a Christian, until my eyes were opened by the Spirit of God. Second birth, being born again. Wow! That's what he's talking about. That your whole mindset changes because you're now made alive spiritually. That is what God came. That is what the Christmas story is about, the renewal and making us spiritually alive. Physical death is overcome because Jesus rose from the dead and Jesus giving us the promise in John 14, 9, because I live, you will live also. How we overcome physical death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 to 57 says this. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is reversed in Christ. Death is reversed. We don't have to fear death. Death is the opportunity to see our Savior. I mean, think about it. I know I've shared this story before, and I really do like the story. But it's like... If, if we are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus, if we are, according to Philippians 1.6, he's continuing the work that he started in us and will bring it to completion, right? Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that means this. That means this. And I remember one pastor said this. He says, I am immortal until I complete all the work God has called me to do. I'm immortal until I complete all the work God has put in. So when I, when I nearly passed away in, in, in early 2001, when I had the coma and, and, and hit my head, and it, it, I think that's where my hair went. But anyway, but when I, when I nearly died, and I didn't die, as you can see, <laughs> what, what's, what's fascinating is I remember when I, I looked at that verse and I thought, God saw me and said, nah, Joe, you're not ready to come home. You still have work to do. And I was like, I got rejected from heaven. I had the choice to go to glory. And God says, nah, not yet. It's not your time because there's still much more that you need to be done. I thought, wow, okay. So death has been overcome through the person of Christ. Physical death, praise God. This is what the Christmas story is about. Third, God must reestablish our third thing, the reinstatement of humanity's rule because Jesus as man took back the authority for man in his resurrection. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We are told within the Scriptures that we will rule with our Savior. We are told that we have command of the angels in, in Hebrews. That, that they, they minister to us because that is what we have been given in Christ. So that rule, we are told in Matthew chapter 8, that all authority in heaven and earth is given to Him. And then He says, we go. And we, we go on His authority on his word, in his power, on his mission to complete his task. 
That's what we've been given. That's, the, that's how he reestablishes our ability to govern. Here's, here's a really interesting thing. Have you ever noticed, and I've noticed this in my marriage, I've noticed this in my family. Have you ever noticed that when you conduct yourself as a husband in accordance with God's word, things seem to work a lot better in your marriage? Have you ever noticed that as husbands? That when you, when you, when you love your wife as Christ loved the church, as, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, when you have that as your motivation to, to love your wife, have you noticed that, 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 that things change? That the focus is different? Because you're seeking to honor God and how you conduct yourself as a husband? Or even as a parent, as a parent, as a dad, trying to, like, I'm going to raise my kids in the nurture and, and admonition of the Lord, and how, look, they may not like it, that's okay, I'll, I'll slap them around, but, but no, I don't, I don't slap my kids anymore, but... No, but all I'm, all, I'm, all I'm saying is, all I'm saying is, all I'm saying is, this is what this is what we do, isn't it? This is what we do. If, if we walk in accordance with God's words and God's will and God's desire, I mean, it may not always go, but God in His mercy, I mean, to them that honor me, I will honor is the promise of Scripture, and, and you see that take place. So I'm just thinking, if if we follow what God has given us and to follow how he's enabled us to govern, then, then maybe, then maybe, maybe things would work a lot smoother in our relationships, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our churches, in our homes. Maybe things will work a lot better because we're following what God's heart is and what God's desire is as opposed to how I think it should be done. It makes a big difference. All right, next one. God must restore the earth, the perfect, the perfect restoration will come when Jesus returns as conquering king. Revelation 21 verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I mean, this, that, that is the ultimate consummation of, of God's redemption plan. But we have the opportunity to partake of such things. We, we get to see, and I always remember Major Ian Thomas, who is the founder of Cape and Ray Bible College. I remember when I heard him speak, and he said, we should be so about the work of God and seeing his kingdom come on earth that when we get to heaven, we should just look at it and say, you have not been here before. Because the kingdom should be manifest within us as the people of God. The unity, the love, the, 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 the one-mindedness, the one desire, the compassion, the mercy, that everything that heaven is should be exemplified in what the church is now. The church has to be manifest of what the kingdom of God will look like. So when we get to heaven, it's like, okay, okay. It's not going to be anything foreign because we've experienced here now. So that perfect restoration will come about. Uh, next one. God must transfer our kingdom membership. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. We have a change of kingdoms when we are saved in Jesus Christ. Much like when I change, I don't talk about it much, but when I change my citizenship, although I'm a dual citizen, you can't, have a, you can't be a dual citizen as a Christian. You can't be a dual citizen. I'm a dual citizen. I belong to New Zealand, and I belong here. Now, some of you may look, well, yeah, that, that was my old life. That's the old man. That's the flesh. That's what New Zealand represents. <laughs> and then, and then <laughs> as Jimmy said, I was covered in darkness back there. I was covered in darkness. A majority of the population, apparently. Just, anyway. 
And then, and then, I, then, I, then I came to the kingdom of Australia where we came, and I, I reaped the benefits of this kingdom. I reaped the benefits of, of being able to work, my kids going to school here, of, of being able to work here, of being involved with the, you know, the, the various things that this community offers. I, I, re, I reap of those benefits. But there's no way, there's no way I can still live according to New Zealand's laws of the land because I'm not in New Zealand anymore, am I? I'm now governed by the laws of Australia. Even though I have dual citizenship, I'm governed by the law of Australia. So if I break the law here, I'll, I'll suffer the law here and all that sort of stuff. I can't hold to my, I can't sit there and say, well, you know, uh, according to Samoan law, that's exemplified in various areas of New Zealand, you can't prosecute me on that ground. You know, that doesn't work. One, I'm not in Samoa, and I'm not in New Zealand. I'm in Australia. Therefore, I'm held responsible for all the things in Australia. Now, you know what we do as Christians? As Christians, we say, I'm a child of the Most High God. I'm, uh, I'm born again. I'm a, kingdom, I'm, I'm a member of the kingdom of heaven. And I'm saying, I want all the blessings of what my God has to offer me. Yeah, praise God. And then he's like, but, yeah, I want to go go hang out back there when I used to do. I want to be governed by the lusts and desires of my heart. I want what I want from back there because it just seems a lot easier. I'm more comfortable with those sorts of things. I don't have to be an outcast. I don't have to be a reject. I don't have to be out on my own. When I'm back there, I'm more more welcomed. Why? Well, we're still trying to live our lives according to the old ways we used to live according to the old man, old heart, old desires. And, and that doesn't work. That's why we have this conflict. It's not because God is any less good and that God is any less loving. It's because I become dissatisfied because I'm so busy trying to measure up to a standard that I used to live by back here. Back here when I wanted the acclaim of men, when I wanted the recognition of, of, of women maybe, of, of all these things back here. And that's why when I'm in the things of God, and the reason why I don't, I don't get get so excited and, and don't get so filled and in awe of the things of God is because I'm not looking at Him. Because here's my God who, who, who loved me, who died for me, who gave His life for me, and I'm, He's there, and I'm in this kingdom, and I'm looking back here. And so while He's calling me saying, Joe, here I am, Joe, this is how much I love you, Joe, I veiled myself to be born in a manger so you can be called my child, and I'm like, oh, I want that job. I want that recognition. I want that life. That's why we're frustrated. Because our eyes are going the wrong way. If you remember the sermon about looking back, about looking back, that's what we do, looking back. Well, that hurt. Okay. So, so that's, that's what happened. So our, our membership, our, our citizenship has been changed. And, and the last one, God must reestablish his theocracy. The crushing of Satan's power at the cross I want to say that again. It was the crushing of Satan's power at the cross, evidenced in the resurrection of the dead, crushing Satan's hold on this world, on us as Satan's people, and on our future destination. He took it all back. He took it all back. When he was born of a virgin at Christmas time, when he lived the way he did, when he was arrested, when he was betrayed, when he was beaten, when he was mocked, when he was scourged, when he was crucified to a cross, when he, was, when he died, when he was buried, all of that, all of that destroyed the power that Satan had on us, on the world, and set us free, free to know him, free to love him, 
free to serve him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 18. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, that he might have the preeminence. This, this is how he restored restored us or given us the opportunity for us to be restored and to and experience the fullness of what life is supposed to be, the consummation of which is when we go to be with them ourselves. The beauty of the Christmas story as promised in Isaiah 7.14, the bringer of hope that addresses this world's brokenness and repair our lives in Isaiah 9.6, who came to reconcile our separation in Luke 4, 18 and 19, to redeem us from sin and death to righteousness and life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. All in order to restore us from this to this. That's why he did it. This is the Christmas story. It is an ongoing story of repairing, of reconciling, of redeeming, and restoring us to what we are supposed to be. This is what Christmas is about. This is what Christmas means. And this is what Christmas, or should I say, the one whom we celebrate at Christmas, invites you to know. So I would encourage you, I would encourage you, even today, even today, to appreciate and look into how much God loves you and see it not from your perspective, but from His, that He is our God who repairs, reconciles, redeems, and restores us to what we're supposed to be. I like that. Just want to bow your heads. And I will close in a word of prayer. And then I'll ask the music team up and we'll close in a song. Father, we thank you so much for this story. For the story that has affected each one of our lives. The story of you who came to repair what we had broken. Who came to reconcile that which we had separated. Who came to redeem and purchase us from which we could not purchase ourselves and to restore us into our rightful place as sons and daughters of the living God. Father, I pray that you will help us to understand and recognize the wonderful truth of 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Thank you for such a privilege. Open our eyes to see you. Open our heart to respond. Open our ears to hear. And Father, may we truly at this particular time be thankful for what you have done for us in being born as a baby, has been living a sinless life, dying on the cross and rising again, so we might be called your own.
Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.